0: Tonight, I would like to speak about someone who has really been the greatest benefactor to us all. Someone who is responsible in quite a direct way for us all being here together. And that is Siddhartha Gautama, who when he became awakened, enlightened, was called the Buddha. What is the meaning or what is the significance of the Buddha's life for us now, in our own lives, in these times? We can understand who the Buddha is and the significance of his life, on several different levels. We can understand the Buddha as a (coughs) historical person. He was born in a certain year, about 500 BC. Grew up, went through all the traumas and problems of childhood and adolescence and got an education and got married. We can trace the historical uh, events of his life. They're quite well known. His personal story. There's another level that we can connect with. And that is understanding the Buddha as a basic archetype of humanity. We could think of the Buddha as the complete expression of the awakened mind. So from this archetypal level, we understand the Buddha's life not merely as his own personal struggles and strivings, his own personal story, but we see his life as the unfolding of this great and sacred mythological journey. It's interesting what we do with the word mythological, because sometimes we hear that word And we associate, well, myth, mythological, make-believe, fairy tale, doesn't have much relevance for us, perhaps. But mythological, in a deeper sense, doesn't mean unreal. Rather, the power of myth is that it universalizes the particular. So when we understand the Buddha's life and journey as a mythological journey, what it's doing is universalizing the particulars of his life. There's one other level that we can understand the Buddha. And that is the level of ultimate reality. Think of it as Buddha nature, the ultimate realities of existence. There was a story from his time. When there were a group of monks and nuns and lay people sitting around him, listening to the teachings, and there was this one monk who was enamored of the physical beauty of the of the Buddha. And he would just keep staring, you know, at this at this beautiful form. This went on for months until finally the Buddha admonished him. And he said, you could look at this form for a hundred years and you would not be seeing the Buddha. Those who understand the Dharma see the Buddha. And that's this third meaning. That is the ultimate realities of experience, of life. That's what the Buddha is. So when we see the Dharma, we see the Buddha. Buddha. So there are these three levels. There's the historical person, there's the mythological journey that he undertook, and there are these basic principles of reality. When we understand the archetypal nature of the Buddha's journey, it can do something very Significant for us in our own lives. What it does is connect our own life and our own experiences to His. We connect the Buddha's journey with our own journey. Now think for a moment of any of the world's great explorers and discoverers in any field, whether great spiritual explorers or geographical or space or scientific or musical, artistic, whatever. I think it's easy for us to get a sense of the creativity, the courage, the perseverance that's needed (laughs) as people are exploring the edge of what is known, of going into the unknown. But often, as we contemplate the accomplishments of these people, we forget, very often, the daily hardships involved. You know, the inconveniences, the loneliness, the defeats all the problems that come up in any discovery, in any journey of awakening, in anything. In some way, the countless ups and downs that you experience in the practice. You've know, we been sitting here for some days now and many of you have been practicing over years. Very familiar with the tremendous ups and downs of practice. Sometimes we're very enthusiastic, we have a lot of energy, And we feel heroic in this journey, and at other times, it's so burdensome, and we feel like we're not getting any place at all. It's important to understand this in the larger context. It's all part of this extraordinary discovery of what our life is about. The journey of discovery of the archetypal spiritual hero and heroine was described very clearly and beautifully by Joseph Campbell, who was one of the great students of world myths, in a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he used the life of the Buddha as the example of this archetypal journey. He talked about it unfolding in different stages. The first stage, both for the Bodhisattva, that is the Buddha to be, and for us as well. The first stage is called the call to awakening or the call to destiny. This arises, this call happens in our lives when something occurs in our life to wake us up. Something happens which makes us begin to question our conventional understanding of things. And we see that our conventional view of ourselves in the world in some way is not complete, is not satisfactory. It doesn't answer the basic questions. Why not? Why is it that our ordinary life somehow leaves us seeking for something else? Most of us live in the world of a verb, and the verb is to have. Right. this this is this is our reality and it's interesting to look at this we have possessions we have relationships we have a mind we have a body we have experiences you know and our whole language structure supports this worldview. it's the world view of having and it was it was Synthesized very clearly by Eric Fromm, he expressed it, he said, I am what I have. (laughs) You know, and think about it. And it's not only kind of the obvious external possessions. It's even things that we take most to be ourselves. We have our thoughts and we have our emotions. And we're defining ourselves and we're defining our reality by this verb, to have. There is a basic problem in this. And that is, there is nothing that we have that we won't lose. That is in the nature of having. So when we're living in this world, in this reality, of the verb to have, built into it is a sense of some feeling of anxiety, of incompleteness, of non-fulfillment. We know that there is something else beside this. In the early life of the Buddha, as a child, this world of having was very strong. He was born a prince and what’s now a little principality in the border of Nepal and India, he had everything. He had all the kinds of luxuries of the time. He had all the sensual delights. He had the best education and the arts and relationships and love and everything. He was living in this perfect world of having. And his father, who is the king, is sort of archetypically represented this worldview. And he wanted, he wanted his son to continue, to take over the throne and continue having everything. But for Siddhartha, the call to destiny, the call to awakening, happened when he began to question this. when he began to question this whole notion of having. it said that he came in a rather dramatic fashion, face to face with the realities of sickness and of old age and death, you know, in quite a striking and shocking way, coming face to face with these as-realities. What is the nature of this body which we think we have? And inexorably and inevitably leading to old age, decay, and death. When we look at that, honestly, you know, in ourselves, it can have a powerful awakening call for us said that when the Bodhisattva contemplated this, he said, why should I, who am subject to decay and death, also seek that which is subject to decay and death? Why should I value that? Why should I spend my life seeking that which is also subject to impermanence, to decay? And so the main question, this call to destiny, this call to awakening, revolved around the question where is real value in our lives to be found? And this is the same question for all of us. You know, and these questions awakened in the Bodhisattva count the energy of countless lifetimes of practice where this was the question. What is the nature of birth and death? Don't you find it odd? (laughs) Somehow we appear at some point in time, lead our lives, and then disappear. (laughs) The whole thing is quite a mystery. What is it all about? You know, do we take the time to consider, to really investigate? What what is the nature of this birth and death? What is going on? Many people, I think, have this passing thought in the course of their lives. Because it's such an obvious question. (laughs) But the thought comes and then very often we simply get re-immersed in the busyness of our lives. What I find tremendously inspiring about retreats is that groups of people come together for whom this call to awakening, this call to destiny, has actually taken root. Because for all of us, in in some way or another, we have begun asking this question and we haven't gotten completely re-immersed. Willing to put the energy and the commitment in something that's not easy to do to really try and discover what this is all about. So I think an, an important question to connect with what brought you to the practice? What was your own particular call to destiny? You know, and to reflect on this, what made you first step out of this world of having to begin to question what, what your life is about? Because if we can reconnect with that initial question, that initial call, And when we can hold that, it's a tremendous source of energy for us and inspiration as we go through the many ups and downs of practice. It's like we remember what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. So that's the first stage in the spiritual journey, the call to awakening. The second stage, which Joseph Campbell described... called it the great renunciation. And this is, I think, a tremendously important aspect to understand. Because in order to awaken to what are often hidden possibilities, truths which may not be obvious to us on the surface appearance of things, in order to awaken to these hidden possibilities we need to be willing to renounce to give up our habitual habitual way of viewing things our habitual way of seeing our conditioned way of relating one of the mysteries and delights of practice both in the metta and in the vipassana practice, just as we get quieter, as our mind gets more concentrated, it's as if new worlds open up. We begin to see that things are not exactly what they appear to be. And so there's this amazing spirit of discovery, of discovery of something new, but we need to be able to let go of our old attachments, our old viewpoints, It's really the renunciation of having as our deepest value. So that we don't spend our lives simply trying to accumulate more and more, have more and more. We begin to understand quite deeply in ourselves... that the quality of our being is a much greater and surer source of happiness than anything we can have. And that is a turning point. Now, when this renunciation happens not only outside in the world, where we stop so obsessively trying to accumulate things and really see that the quality of our own mind and heart is actually more important. We can see that happening in the world outside simply in coming to a retreat. You've renounced a lot. You know, IMS is comfortable, but you're probably more comfortable at home. You know, and an open refrigerator and <laughs> TVs and VCRs and all the things we do to amuse ourselves. So there is a level of renunciation just in coming here. or willing to let go of a certain ease and comfort. There's a renunciation that happens in the practice. You know, in coming back to the phrases and metta, what we're really doing is making a choice to renounce, let go of, Sort of so much of the discursive thinking that arises. It's not that it stops arising, but we're making a choice no, I'm not going to go down that track. I'll come back to the next phrase. That's a quality of renunciation, of letting go of what's familiar to explore a possibility. Well, what will happen if I actually concentrate my mind on this? Where is this going? How will this open? There's a kind of renunciation even within the phrases of metta. You know, we finish one phrase, may you be happy. and We let it sit there for a moment and we savor it for a moment and then let it go to allow the next phrase to arise. This letting go, this renunciation is happening moment after moment. And it's the it's the very essence of spiritual freedom. The great renunciation on so many levels, the external level, the level in which we do our practice. For the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, this great renunciation took the form of leaving the palace. He left the palace. He left all the sense delights. He left the comforts. He left what was familiar. And he went off in search of awakening, in search of enlightenment. He studied with different teachers. First, he studied with teachers of samadhi practice, developing all the jhanas, these states of absorptions, until he had mastered that kind of practice. He did six years of ascetic practice, and in India at those times, these were highly valued culturally. This tremendously rigorous asceticism, you know, of self-mortification of the body. And there are many descriptions of the kinds of disciplines he undertook. Uh, a lot of it had to do with long periods of fasting and you know, getting down to eating one rice of grain every three days and just taking it to extremes. There's, there's, a, there's a very powerful image in Buddhist countries. Uh, I mean, usually we see Buddha images like this, but there's one image, it's called the, the emaciated Buddha. It's really the Bodhisattva before he was enlightened. It represents him in the time of this great ascetic period, and it's a very powerful image to see because basically it's just all, it's just ribs and bones, and, but with the energy or the, the power of unrelenting inquiry, even in the midst of that very weakened state. So anyway, he did this for six years. He realized after all that time that it was not the right way. It wasn't leading him to enlightenment awakening. Finally, he took some nourishment. He got some strength back. And he prepared himself for the third stage in this great journey of awakening. The first is the call to awakening, the call to destiny, waking us up. The second is the great renunciation, giving up what's familiar, giving up what's comfortable, giving up what's known. The third stage is called the great struggle, and this is represented in the Buddha's life as he sat down under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment. This is the tree that, whose great granddaughter is in Bodhgaya, now there's a kind of a descendant of the original tree and a magnificent temple. You know, comm- comm- commemorating uh, this event. And it said that on the night that he sat, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree, Mara, who is the embodiment of delusion, the embodiment of ignorance, the embodiment of sense pleasures, that's, that's who Mara represents, came to test him. And I'd like to read from Joseph Campbell this. Sort of mythopoetic description of what happened that night under the tree. As you listen to it, see if you can enter into the imagery, because the imagery is wonderful. So the Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree, and straight away was approached by Kamamara the God of desire and death. The dangerous God appeared mounted on an elephant and carrying weapons in his thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before him, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and in the rear as far as to the confines of the world. The protecting deities of the universe took flight, but the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And then the god assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunder and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, Blistering sands and fourfold darkness, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers by the power of Gautama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed the forces of desire and pining and lust. But the mind of the great being was not distracted the god finally challenged his right to be sitting on the spot, flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at him with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. She did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Dramatic moment. Every time we sit, we are sitting under the Bodhi Tree. This is a mythopoetic description of what happens to us every time we sit. Just like the Bodhisattva, we sit and we are confronted by all the armies of Mara. By restlessness and desire and anger and all the things that we've been talking about. When we see our practice in this light, our own particular struggles take on a much greater meaning and significance than the particular hindrance that happens to be arising. So easy to lose sight of the magnitude and really the majesty of what is going on. You know, we get so caught in our own little story, we see that this is the same great struggle that all beings on this sacred mythological journey encounter. So it gives a sense of context, it gives a sense of inspiration when we connect with this. this willingness to open to all of our experience, the willingness to sit there, to train ourselves to have a mind that is unmoved in the face of all that Mara displays. This is the meaning of heroic effort. This is what we are practicing. This is the call to destiny, the great renunciation, the great struggle. The spiritual journey culminates in this fourth stage, which Campbell described as the great awakening, the great enlightenment. For the Buddha, it happened in that night after he had vanquished Mara and the forces of Mara in the three watches of the night. In the first watch of the night, it said, that his mind reviewed countless past lives. He was able to go back and see lifetime after lifetime, of being born, living out a certain existence, dying, being reborn again. And the power of being able to see that lies both in seeing the insubstantiality We take our lives so seriously. We take our dramas so seriously. If we could see countless lifetimes, just over and over and over again, we might be a little more detached. (laughs) And so in that way, it was tremendously opening. And seeing the endlessness, that there was no beginning to this round of rebirth, In the second watch of the night, it said the Bodhisattva, as he was watching this display of lifetime after lifetime, in the second watch of the night, he understood the law of karma. And seeing how all beings were reaping the fruits of their actions. They were born and acted and died and reborn according to the kinds and qualities of their actions. And this awoke within him a tremendous compassion. Why? You know, because when we see people wanting to be happy and yet doing the very things that cause suffering, when we see that directly in our own, in our own experience and in the people around us, it gives rise to compassion. If only people could see, if only people could awaken. And in the third watch of the night, it said the Bodhisattva opened to the most profound truths of the Dhamma. Understanding the four noble truths of suffering and its cause. The end of suffering, the way to the end of suffering. The law of dependent origination. Of what conditions want. It said that just at daybreak, as he was reviewing all of this through the watches of the night, just as the morning star appeared in the sky, his mind opened to full realization, to Buddhahood. The first verse that he uttered after his enlightenment is quite a famous one that's recited very often in Buddhist cultures. If you stop for just a moment to reflect okay, lifetimes of practice culminating in awakening, in Buddhahood, and this is the first utterance that he said. I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this house of mind and body. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters have been broken, your ridge pole shattered. Mind has attained unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Oh house builder, you have now been seen. You will build no house again. How many more houses will we be building? (laughs) The Buddha was enlightened at the age of thirty five he spent the next 45 years teaching. He spent some weeks around the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya. Then he went to Sarnath, which is uh, there's a deer park outside of Benares, Varanasi. That's where he gave the first sermon. And it's called, Turning of the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. The very first sermon that he gave. It's like he turned this great wheel of the Dharma which in the most amazing fashion rolled across India and Asia, somehow across the ocean to Barrie, Massachusetts. <laughs> you know, over centuries, over thousands of years, this wheel of the Dharma is still rolling. In a way, he taught about the causes of suffering and the possibility of freedom. He taught about the great jewel of emptiness, of selflessness. After he taught the first his first disciples, and he had sixty Arhans, sixty fully enlightened beings. He sent them out with a message. And I think it's a very important uh, teaching for us to consider, especially in these times. He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas, celestial beings. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, and excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duties. Go forth for the good of many, for the happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and welfare and happiness of humans and neighbors. Work for the good of others. This motivation is at the heart of our practice. To understand that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. That whatever our individual motivations may be, and we all have our own reasons which have brought us to practice, we can put them into the larger context of understanding that our practice is never for ourselves alone. can we understand and practice from that place of compassion for the suffering in the world? But that becomes our motivation and reason for practice. We cultivate in our meditation itself this sense of service to others. The question arises for people, and I think it's, a reasonable question how does sitting here on our cushion watching our breath or saying phrases how does this help anybody else in what way is this of benefit to anybody else there are two ways to understand this One is that the more we understand our own minds, the more we see the commonality among all beings. And this has become very clear to me in teaching in so many different places around the world. You know, we go to completely different cultures and people with different backgrounds and stories, and we sit down in a retreat. It is the same knee pain, It's the same restlessness, it's the same anger, it's the same compassion, it's the same love. The stories are different. The nature of our mind and body and hearts is exactly the same. When we understand ourselves, we understand everyone. And that forms the basis for a genuine feeling of connection, of oneness. People are no longer so separate. We feel that. It becomes not so much an intellectual idea. It really is our way or basis of relating to other people. We are the same. We have the same stuff. And our practice is for the benefit of others in another way. And it's very obvious, although it gets overlooked all the time. And that is, to the degree that we transform ourselves, that we purify ourselves of greed and hatred and ignorance and fear and jealousy and envy, to the degree that our own minds are purified of these forces, there is that much less greed and hatred and ignorance and fear and delusion in the world. And to the degree that we cultivate greater love and compassion and kindness, it's so obvious that it cannot help but affect everyone around us. And in ways that are very mysterious. There's a sort of a new field of science about which I know very little. It's called the study of chaos, and supposedly it's the study of disorder in the universe, of systems which are disordered. For example, it's the study of weather patterns, or if you if you watch smoke rising. You know, it seems to be a very disordered happening. Well, chaos is the study of phenomena like this. So the idea is that underneath the surface appearances of things, there is a tremendous sense of disorder in the world. You know, an unpredictability, a strange type of chaos. But then people who are studying this they look deep into the chaos and they find an even stranger kind of order what interested me about this theory is that it seems so parallel to our experience in meditation you know at first people have not practiced <coughs> oh yeah i know who i am you know people have a very certain sense of who they are and what they're about in the world But then we take a look, we sit down and actually begin to look at ourselves, and it feels like chaos. It feels like we've entered into this world of confusion and not knowing. But then as we go deeper, as we go right into the chaos, there's a whole new kind of order, kind of beauty. Well, there's a certain principle involved in the science of chaos, which has bearing on all this, which is why I'm telling you the story. The principle is called sensitive dependence on initial conditions, which means that in a system, a small input into the system can have a big output later on a small change over here results in a big change over there. And the scientists call this the butterfly effect because the example they used was that of a butterfly flapping its wings in China, creating a blizzard in Boston. <laughs> Just the chain, the sequence of events A small input into the system over here gets transformed and transformed and transformed and transformed and transformed until there's a big output over here. Every phrase that you say is the butterfly flapping its wings. We don't know. We can't see the tremendous effect that takes place from every moment of purifying our minds whether it's doing the metta, whether it's watching our breath, whether it's doing vipassana, whether it's just being aware. It's in this way that our practice is for the benefit of all beings. The reason I'm emphasizing this now is that often we have a sense of this. We can have a sense that yes, our practice is going to have a good effect in the world. But there's something further we can do with this that is not only recognize, yes, this is a good byproduct of our practice, but actually strengthen it as the motivation for our practice. There's a big difference When we strengthen this motivation, the reason I'm doing this, or I undertake this purification for the benefit of all, that motivation changes the quality of our practice, changes the quality of our experience. It is a tremendous source of energy. So instead of proceeding along in our practice like this, as if... Personally, we're just going for what we are going to get out of it, which can be fine. There's a much broader approach. Yes, I'm doing this for the benefit, for the happiness of all beings. So then it's like going along with everybody. This is the energy that motivated the Bodhisattva. Over those countless lifetimes necessary to become a Buddha. I mean, just imagine what kind of energy was needed to stay persevering through those eons and mahakalpas of time. Needed a powerful source. That source was compassion. Compassion for the suffering of all beings motivated his practice. We can practice that same motivation in ourselves. Just to give you a tangible sense of the change it can make in our experience. Of course, you'll really best be able to do this when you leave, but uh, hold it in mind. When you leave and you're kind of on some busy street, walking down the street, notice the difference between when you're walking down, lost in your own world, intent on what you have to do. And then if you can remember just switching channels, starting to do meta for everyone on the street. So you're still walking down the street going to wherever you're going, but as you're doing it, may everyone on the street be happy. May everyone be healthy. May everyone be free. Not necessarily out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Although you could. It has been so striking to me the difference in my own experience as I do that it goes from a world that's very constricted and very narrow, my own little world, all of a sudden, the world gets very big, very inclusive. It's like, okay, we're all on the street together rather than being separate. It's so simple. And one doesn't have to be a spiritual genius to do this. It's just remembering. And again, The remembering takes greater and greater strength when we practice this motivation for our practice being compassion. Yes, I'm practicing for the benefit of all. And all includes ourselves. We're not excluding ourselves. It's including all. (coughs) One more little piece. Compassion by itself is not enough. Because for compassion to really bear fruit, we need to take action. The real juice of compassion is when we act on those compassionate feelings. But what this action requires is very great discriminating wisdom. We need to see, we need to understand what action will actually bring good result. To have compassion without wisdom, our hearts may be in the right place, And we may end up doing a lot of things that really don't serve people because we don't understand. We don't understand necessarily what the root causes of suffering are and how best to alleviate them. So for compassion to be effective, we need also to develop very great and incisive discriminating wisdom. We need to see clearly which paths of action lead to happiness, which lead to suffering. We need to know this in our own experience. And these are the two great wings of the Dharma, which were perfected by the Buddha. The wing of compassion and the wing of wisdom. And the sort of beauty and the symmetry of this retreat, really, is that we're spending time cultivating both. You know, these first four or five days, cultivating loving kindness and metta and compassion. Mm -hmm. Starting tomorrow, cultivating discriminating wisdom and insight. The Buddha perfected these two qualities. And his teaching and the many teaching stories that you read in the text all illustrate this wonderful balance. Let's tell you a few Buddha teaching stories which I like. (laughs) One of my favorites is a story about the dullard. There was this poor guy who was Really dull. <laughs> dull meaning stupid. And he had a he had a brother who was very bright. And the brother was a monk. And not only a monk, but he was a fully enlightened monk. He was an arhat. And the Dull had also joined the order. He had a he had a wonderful heart. And he had a lot of devotion. He was just really stupid. <laughs> so, so his arhat brother, his enlightened brother, gave him as his meditation, one four line verse to learn. One four line teaching. And it said, This poor dullard spent months trying to learn this. And he'd learn one line after weeks and weeks of practice. And then as he would be working on the second line, it would push out the 1st He'd <laughs> <laughs> get the second and the third would push out the- Finally the brother got totally um, frustrated or whatever emotion-enlightened beings haven't in that regard. <laughs> 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 and said, this is hopeless. <laughs> you better leave. You, you're, not, you're just not cut out to be a monk in this life. I can imagine the sadness of this poor doll. He, he was totally broken-hearted. He felt really dejected. He was very devoted you know, to the Dharma, to the teachings. So he left. He was walking away feeling very, very downcast. His head was hanging low. And the Buddha came to know of what had happened. Sort of psychically, magically, the Buddha appeared by his side. So the Buddha started stroking his head. You know, it's okay, dullard. <laughs> and he said, this is my Sangha. It's not your brother's Sangha. <laughs> I'll give you a meditation subject you know, to, to work with. So he, he, the Buddha said to this Dalit, take a, take a handkerchief. Just take a white handkerchief. Stand out in the hot sun and rub it. That was a whole practice. Take the white handkerchief, stand out in the sun and rub it. Okay, the Dalit thought he could manage this. <laughs> so he went out, he took the handkerchief, he started rubbing it. And lo and behold, as he started rubbing it, the handkerchief started getting soiled, started getting dirty. And it called up, which of course only the Buddha had known. It called up many past lifetimes of practice, where this this monk, the dullard, had practiced meditating on the impurities of the body as a way of fostering detachment, non-attachment, of letting go. And so as he saw this, as he saw the handkerchief getting soiled, all of that previous practice came to the fore. His mind reached this stage, state of dispassion, of equanimity, he became fully enlightened. Not only fully enlightened, but it said with all the powers of the intellect and lots of magic powers. (laughs) (laughs) It's a long story. It goes on to describe his going back and playing psychic tricks on his brother. (laughs) But the story touches me because first just the compassion of the Buddha and the wisdom, the wisdom of the Buddha in being able to see just the hidden tendencies, the hidden potential of all beings and being able to, just the right one to awaken. Now this this is the great power of the Buddha, which is why this such a feeling, or can be such a feeling, of respect, of devotion. Somebody who had purified their mind to such an extent that the compassion, that his compassion became so effective. one more little story. It's not actually about the Buddha, but it's about the use of miracles. And usually the Buddha did not recommend displaying them, the psychic powers and magical powers, which can be developed, and people do develop them. But every once in a while, in order to inspire faith in people, he would allow it. Turns out that the Buddha's mother died shortly after childbirth, And he was raised by his aunt, to whom he was very devoted, who later became, uh, in fact, uh, initiated the order of nuns. She quickly became fully enlightened with all of these psychic powers. She was one of the very great nuns. She lived to be 120 years old. And just before she died, the Buddha, she was coming to her respects to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, you know, for the welfare out of compassion for all these beings here, just demonstrate your powers. Okay, what I like about this story is just thinking of this 120 year old lady. So she sat cross-legged and flew into the air and dove into the earth and created manifest, manifold bodies and did all of these things that one supposedly can do, and then <laughs> just the thought of a hundred and twenty-year-old nun doing that <laughs> is really wonderful. And then finally, after demonstrating all of these powers, she came to the Buddha and said, "Is that enough? You know, can I take rest now, the final rest?" And the Buddha said yes, and she passed away. So. I'd like to close with a little demonstration. (laughs) Maybe next year. I'd like to close with the last words of the Buddha before he died. Um, And again, try to just imagine the scene because here's the Buddha, the fully awakened one, the fully enlightened one, having spent 45 years teaching this path of the Dharma, the path of awakening to beings, out of compassion, out of love, And these are the last words that he's saying. So they're powerful. And I think that if we listen in the right spirit, they have very great import and impact. He said, with the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay... Are all conditioned things strive on with heedfulness? With the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Strive on with heedfulness. Let's sit for a few minutes.